Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're starting in the book of Acts, chapter 23, and we'll be getting into Paul's trials here in Jerusalem, and we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to come here to study your word and to uh, apply it to our life. We know that there's many practical lessons that you've given us and that uh, Scripture reveals these kinds of things that uh, helps us be a beacon and light to the world. And thanks for Mark and his diligence in these studies. And bless this time together in Jesus' name. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's really good to be back with all of you. Uh, We have been looking at the book of Acts, hopefully in a way a little different than what we're used to or what we might have heard in big churches over the last generation or so. We have worked our way down to Paul's return trip to Jerusalem, and we saw how diligent he was to get to Jerusalem. We pointed out that it doesn't say it in Acts, but from Paul's other letters, we know that he was accompanying a large contribution given predominantly by foreign churches or non-Judean churches for the Christians in Judea who were suffering the effects of a famine. And along the way, Paul is told numerous times by believers with the gift of prophetic utterance that he will be bound if he gets to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he meets with the leaders of the church, which is now over 100,000 people, presumably all of whom are Judean and all of whom are following the law of Moses zealously, we're told in very clear terms. But they're concerned because so many of these Judean believers have heard that Paul is teaching for them to abandon the law and abandon circumcision. So they suggest that Paul help four of their number to complete some Nazarite vows in the temple and pay for their sacrifices, the animals that had to be slain and offered along with the conclusion of their vow. And also their hair is also cut off and burned at the same time. So Paul is laying low. He, The previous time he came to Jerusalem, he tried to take Stephen's place and argue with the Greek-speaking Judeans, and they violently opposed him, and Paul had to be secreted out of the city. This time he just kind of maintains a low profile, 
he comes in, he follows the wishes of the church leaders there, and as he is going about these rituals in the temple area, he is spotted by some of his opponents, uh, vicious, non-believing Judeans from the province of Asia near Ephesus, and they start screaming and raising a mob, and they would have ripped uh, Paul limb from limb. The Roman garrison comes down and saves him, lifts him up and carries him up the stairs towards their fortress, and Paul is given permission to address the crowd, and that goes pretty well until he says that God has sent him to the other nations, at which the crowd turns into a foaming mass of rabid dogs again. And the commanding officer, Lysias, tries to find out a little bit of what's going on, but then sends out an order, probably crouched as a request for the Sanhedrin to gather the next morning. And uh, that they met in a building that was directly adjacent to the temple courtyard. Wouldn't have been too far to go. So chapter 23 here opens as Paul is there before this council that is called and Lysias has uh, sent Paul down with a protective escort of Roman soldiers to stand amongst the leaders of the Judean nation. Let's go ahead and read the first five verses, please. Paul gazed intently at the Sanhedrin. Then he said, Brothers, to this day I have lived my life with a clear conscience before God. At that, the high priest, Ananias, ordered his attendants to strike Paul on the mouth. Paul said to him in rebuttal, You are the one God will strike, you whitewashed wall. You sit there judging men according to the law, yet you violate the law yourself by ordering me to be struck. At this, the attendants protested, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul answered, My brothers, I did not know that he was the high priest. Indeed, scripture has it, You shall not curse a prince of your people. Great. Thank you, Leslie. All right. So uh, Paul is very confident as he addresses these very important men. He had once held a great standing amongst this same council, although that was many years before, maybe 15 years before, upon his declaration that he had lived before God with a clear conscience uh, every day until that day, the high priest Ananias immediately ordered him to be uh, struck. Paul didn't take this uh, lightly. He understood the privileges of citizenship in the Judean nation, one, and in the in Rome, uh, number two, and he never hesitates to use that to accomplish his mission, which uh, we've talked about is a very intense job that God gave him to do. And he insults this high priest. Ananias is the name. This man is known to us from historical accounts uh, beyond the Bible, primarily from Josephus, who wrote a detailed history of Judea which gives lots and lots of details of the years leading up to the utter destruction of the nation. This uh, 
Ananias received the office of high priest from Herod Agrippa's younger brother, Herod of Chalcis, in the year 47 and held it for 11 or 12 years, which was a very, very long time in those days. They basically, the the Romans and the Herodian rulers sold the office to the highest bidder and they kept the high priest garments in hawk or in, as hostage in, in their custody and only released them once a year for the Day of Atonement, which was the only ceremony that the Law of Moses prescribed the high priest to officiate in. So that was his big day of the year. And uh, the garments would only be released to someone who was pleasing to the puppet rulers that Rome had set up, uh, mostly Herod's descendants and the Roman government themselves. This man uh, was not a sterling character of um, a moral example to his people at all. He He's accused by Josephus of stealing the tithes that were set apart for the common priests, uh, seizing them for his own personal property. And there's even a section in the Talmud that is making fun of this guy for being so greedy. <laughs> so he didn't really have a good reputation. So the fact that he would have a prisoner struck before the prisoner is even allowed to be heard shows his contempt for the law and his attitude of placing himself above the law. The insult that Pyle gives him back is immediately questioned by the attendants of the high priest who ask why Paul is reviling the high priest. And then Paul gives this uh, answer saying that he did not know that he was high priest. And then he quotes Exodus 22, verse 8, uh, one of the many prescriptions in the law of Moses, you shall not speak evil of a ruler or prince of your people. And some scholars say, oh, well, Paul's been gone 15 years, so he doesn't really know who the high priest is, but Tom Compton got me hooked on Thai food many years ago. And uh, when you go into a Thai restaurant, there's something, usually a picture on the wall of every Thai restaurant and that I notice, and that's of the king of uh, of Thailand. And so these Thais who are scattered all over the world, they all know who the ruler is back in Thailand. And I think that the Judeans in every synagogue amongst the Roman Empire would have known who the high priest was, particularly one that had held office for, for a number of years. So I don't believe that that's the best answer for why Paul, Paul says this. Uh, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest, but he, and we, we've talked about this many times on these programs, how that the, the law had been corrupted through the years. And we have in the office of the high priest and it being sold to the highest bidder instead of being passed down through Aaron's family as prescribed by the law of Moses, we see yet another way in which 
the law as God had given it had been perverted by the people. And so I, I believe this is what Paul is referring to in verse 5 when he's saying, I did not know that he was high priest. He's using extreme sarcasm because what he's basically saying is this guy is not really a legitimate high priest according to the law. All right, any thoughts or comments on that? All right. Let's go ahead and read verses 6 through 10, please. Paul, it should be noted, was aware that some of them were Sadducees and some Pharisees. Consequently, he spoke out before the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee and was born a Pharisee. I find myself on trial now because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. At these words, a dispute arose between Pharisees and Sadducees, which divided the whole assembly. The Sadducees, of course, maintained that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, while the Pharisees believe in all these things. A loud uproar ensued. Finally, some scribes of the Pharisee party arose and declared emphatically, We do not find this man guilty of any crime. If a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, at this the dispute grew worse, and the commander feared they would tear Paul to pieces. He therefore ordered his troops to go down and rescue Paul from their midst and take him back to the headquarters. All right. Well, this is almost a humorous scene. You know, we had the mob of Judeans acting like rabid dogs the day before, and so now we're amongst the most refined, civilized, and highly educated citizens of the nation, and yet their council also breaks down into kind of a mob riot here, which Paul has partially triggered by using the response to his insult of the high priest, who was a Sadducee, by the way. The Pharisees in the council would have probably had to work hard to conceal a snigger when Paul called him a whited wall. (laughs) So from the response to Paul's insult, he gathered that that the vast majority of the council were Pharisees, or at least that they were significantly divided. And so he tries to identify with the Pharisees as a Pharisee, and he states that he is being judged concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is very important to note, and we will come back to this before we leave the study of these trials. Paul has been accused not of the hope of the resurrection, but he's been accused of desecrating the temple of preaching against the law, preaching against the people, and preaching against the temple compound and even Jerusalem as a center for worship. 
these are the things that the mob was screaming against him and that even some of the believers in Jerusalem had suspected concerning Paul. And yet Paul is going to state over and over that he is being judged concerning the hope of the resurrection. And so we hope to examine this to find out how there could possibly be a connection between the hope of the resurrection and the law and the temple and Moses and the worship in Jerusalem and so on and so forth. Now, the Sadducees were very worldly and they denied the oral tradition that the Pharisees had added onto the law, but they also denied the resurrection and the existence of spirits of any kind, as verse 8 tells us here. So they are certainly not going to be excited about Paul stating that he is being judged concerning the hope of resurrection. Very important point here in verse 9, because some of the Pharisees jump up and commend Paul and openly state that we find no guilt in this man. What if some spirit or angel has spoken to him? Well, of course, the Sadducees are thinking no spirit spoke to him, no angel spoke to him. And there's no resurrection, so they're certainly not impressed. But it's very important to note at this point that at this moment in time, the Pharisees are very impressed, and as far as they know, they agree with Paul. And very few religious teachers in the last 200 years, maybe even six or 700 years, have ever tried to explore the connection between the charges made against Paul and Paul's statement, which he makes over and over again, that he is on trial for the hope of Israel, also known as the resurrection. And I think it will be profitable for us to examine this because it, it gets to the heart of all the confusion and division amongst believers in our day and age. And it really exposes so much of the bad eschatology or view of the last things that is destroying our world and empowering the slaughter of uh, Palestinians in Gaza even as we speak here at this moment tonight. I'll pause and see if there's any comments or questions here. I've got some more to say, I think, before we read any more here. Were you going to get into the fact that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees did? Well, it's, that's certainly a key essential fact. We all need to understand that. And you know, Luke tells us that in uh, verse 8 there, point blank, the primary differences between this group. They, uh, these parties came about in the days of the Maccabees which was after Alexander the Great had conquered the world and spread Greek culture throughout the world. And 
the Pharisees originally began as a sect of the Judeans who were opposing the Hellenization or Greekification of their nation, of their customs, and of their religion. And so they started for a noble purpose uh, back in those times. And the Sadducees emerged uh, also in that time. They were a little more disposed to cooperate with the foreigners who kept uh, occupying uh, the country. And the Maccabees, who threw off the Greek rulers out of uh, Syria, they were originally Pharisees, but as they became wealthy and powerful, they were won over to the Sadducean point of view. And uh, they typically persecuted the, the uh, Pharisees whenever they had the opportunity. There was a great queen who arose and held the throne, I think about seven years, named Salome. And uh, she was a Pharisee, and she helped greatly to ease the persecution on the Pharisees and may have allowed them to become the uh, prevalent popular uh, faction in the country. The Pharisees offered the people an afterlife, and the Sadducees didn't. So the Pharisees enjoyed much more uh, popular support, and Jesus comments on that. Uh, when he is teaching the people, as we've looked at in some of the Gospels in past months. But anyway, good. thanks for uh, emphasizing that, Leslie. Sure. Okay, so we would assume, and most Bible teachers within recent history have assumed that this exchange proves that Paul's view of resurrection is the same as the Pharisees' view on resurrection. But we can hold that thought here as until we get a little bit further into these trials. Yes? What would that view of the Pharisees' view of the resurrection, what would that be? Well... Uh, we, we are going to get into that. I'll just, this is as good a time as any. The, there have been a lot of writings and Talmudic writings uh, to preserve what the Pharisees thought. And it's very weird. It's very bizarre. There were minority Pharisees who objected to this view. But the majority view through most of the years that the Pharisees were great uh, power And for years after the destruction of the temple, as their survivors uh, created what we know as rabbinic Judaism today, they taught that everybody who was an Israelite would be physically, their corpse would be physically raised from the dead at the same time to live physically in a physically restored messianic kingdom in physical Palestine. Most of them taught that you had to be buried in the land in order to share in the resurrection. And so even to this day, the grave plots uh, that are near the, that are on the Mount of Olives facing the Temple Mount, these are the highest priced cemetery plots in the world, I'm told. 
because so many uh, Jews today even believe that you have to be buried in the land in order to share in the resurrection that will occur when Messiah comes. Now, some of the teachers believe that God would miraculously open up subterranean tunnels to allow Israelites buried in the far-flung outposts of the world, their bodies would be miraculously transported back to Palestine so that they could be resurrected. And we have all of these tracts and sayings of these rabbis recorded on how they were going to deal with the overcrowding that was going to occur when everyone who had ever lived was alive again in the land of Palestine all at the same time. And some of these writings order on being ludicrous, you know, on how to deal with it. So it was, to summarize it, their view was the, this view of a physical resurrection. It was all about physical corpses coming out of a grave to share in a physical kingdom in a physical land that would be part of a physical temple being rebuilt and a physical king ruling on a physical throne, that physical king would be the Messiah. Well, isn't all that rather close to the Christian dispensational view that's probably not common to all, but certainly is believed by some Christians that the millennial kingdom will be a physical thing? Yes. <laughs> Uh, your your term uh, coining the new Pharisees. Um, the more I study, the closer it hits to the mark. Sounds like it. A very brilliant observation there. <laughs> uh, well, you sure to let us along. <laughs> yeah. Well, it goes where it goes. All right. Anything else uh, that we want to talk about before we? continue with the narrative here all right let's go ahead then paul is rescued here by the soldiers a second time and taken back into the fortress a second time so let's read uh, 11 through 15 please that night the lord appeared at paul's side and said keep up your courage just as you have given testimony to me here in jerusalem so must you do in rome when it was day, certain Jews formed a conspiracy in which they bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them who took the oath together. They then went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves by oath to touch no food until we kill Paul. Now, together with the Sanhedrin, you must suggest to the commander that he have Paul brought down to you on the pretext that you would like to examine his case more carefully. We are prepared to kill him before he gets there. All right. Now, the Lord had told Paul that he would be a witness for him before kings, potentates, and so on, away back on the road to Damascus that we looked at back in chapter 9. 
And now it is actually taking place, and he receives another vision where Christ appears and tells him again that he will bear testimony in Rome. And we see that the Judeans are not really impressed at all by any of this, and more than 40 of them vow not to eat or drink until they had uh, murdered Paul. And they go and openly tell the chief priests and elders about what they're doing and actually get the entire council to become involved in their conspiracy so that Paul can be brought out of the fortress again and they can assassinate him. This calls to mind an earlier event when we looked at the Gospel of John early on in that account we recall how Jesus fed the multitudes up near the coast of the Sea of Galilee and they figured out that someone that could feed thousands and thousands of people on demand might make a good general and so I don't know if you recall this, but they tried to seize him to make him fill in the blank. Does anyone remember they, they wanted to make Jesus their king? king? Yes. Now, this is incredibly damaging to our dispensational friends because their entire foundation of belief is built on the idea that God wanted to establish his kingdom, a physical kingdom, as Chuck mentioned, in the first century. And that God had it all laid out, was planning to set it up, and they're correct in stating that this kingdom was promised to Israel, was for Israel, and would be Israel. They are correct when they say that. But they say that God offered it to Israel in the first century, but they rejected him. So you have Israel looking for a physical king, looking for a restored kingdom, and you have Jesus who came to set up the kingdom, and the people offer the kingdom to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Do you remember this should have been a meeting of the minds and a win-win situation. But what did Jesus do back in John 6? Well, he ran away from them. He rejected their offer to be made king out of hand. And this, this simple fact really destroys the whole foundation of dispensationalism. Because they believe and teach that God's intent was to set up a physical kingdom in the first century. But that the Judeans rejected it and thwarted God's plan. And now a dispensationalist would not necessarily present it in the same exact wording that I would. But when you distill down their views, that's a fairly accurate representation of what they believe. And and now here in Acts 23, we have Judeans who are working hard to defeat God's plan. 
God has just said, don't worry, Paul, you are going to go to Rome. But in stark contrast, Luke tells us the the zealots among the Judean leadership are saying, he's not going anywhere, we're going to kill him. In other words, they're setting themselves directly against God's plan, just like the dispensationalists say happened. Okay, do, do we understand the the background here? Okay, let's go ahead and then and read verses 16 through 22. The son of Paul's sister heard about the plot, and when he did so, he came to headquarters. They allowed him to enter, and he told Paul about it. Paul then called for one of the centurions, to whom he said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to report to him. The centurion took him in charge and led him to the commander with the explanation, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring you this boy who has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and drew him aside to ask privately, What do you have to report? The boy replied, The Jews have agreed among themselves to ask you tomorrow to have Paul brought down to the Sanhedrin on the pretext that they want to question him more carefully. But don't be fooled by them. More than 40 of them are lying in wait. They have bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they kill him. They are all ready now, waiting only for your consent. The commander sent the boy away with the order, don't tell anyone that you gave me this information. And uh, why don't you go ahead and read uh, 23 and 24, please, also. Sure. Then the commander summoned two of his centurions and said to them, Get ready to leave for Caesarea by 9 o'clock tonight with 200 infantrymen, 70 cavalrymen, and 200 spearmen. Also provide horses for Paul's journey so that you may give him safe conduct to Felix, the governor. He then wrote the governor a letter to this effect. All right. Thank you. Uh, so th- the narrative here is pretty self-explanatory. Do, does anyone think that it was merely good luck or coincidence that Paul's nephew happened to overhear word of this ambush? His ears would be uh, more sensitive to what would be pertaining to Paul than anybody else, I'm sure, in the, you know, since it was in the family. But did God act uh, uncertain as to whether Paul would reach Rome safely or not? <laughs> he was adamant. Yeah, he knew, he absolutely knew Paul would get to Rome safely. And so... We don't have a written account, but what do you think happened to these 40 Judean zealots who promised not to eat or drink anything until they killed Paul? I think they died. <laughs> well, you have, a, you have a little more confidence in them. Chuck might give a different answer. <laughs> I think they'll, de- they'll, de- they'll declare that oath of Kalnidri or whatever it is that allows them to break any oath. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's got to oh, be no. some. Uh, there's got to be a loophole. That looks yes, for a loophole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see? I mean, it's a it's a little bit of a challenging point to make. But the dispensationalists claim that the Judeans were able to thwart God's plan to establish the kingdom, and had to postpone it and put a gap, a 2,000-year gap into all the prophecies to keep from making all of the prophets of Israel into false prophets, lying prophets. Because they all pointed to the first century as the time of fulfillment. But, oh, well, but God had to change his plan because the Judeans thwarted his plan. Can you see how ludicrous that whole idea, which is the foundation for the entire dispensational view, is in light of Luke's narrative here. These 40 are going to thwart God's plan. Are they able to do that? No. Absolutely not. I mean, it's a joke, really. It's it's almost humorous, I think, well, the way Luke I, is writing this. Fighting God is no laughing matter, though. Well, no, and I mean that's the that's the axe that's hanging over their heads. That's yeah. the sense of urgency that we've seen in every New Testament book, every gospel. I mean, John the Baptist, that's what he came out preaching. You snakes, who warned you to flee the wrath that is about to come? Behold, the root is laid bare and the axe is already chopping at the root of the nation. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. But uh, th this is the message throughout all of the New Testament books, which only span, you know, a period of time of 40 years, one generation. There is judgment imminent upon the nation of Judea for their crime. So, yes, opposing God's plan is not a light matter. And these guys, if they really did starve themselves to death, you know, they paid for it. But if they renounce their vow, they definitely receive recompense uh, in short order for what they had tried to do here to thwart God's plan. All right, we don't quite have time to get through the rest of this, but uh, we'll, we'll try to pick up next time uh, here at verse 25. And we're going to, once we get through chapters 24 and 25, we're going to be looking at Paul's defense out of 23, 24, and 25 together because in each of his addresses, things are stated a little bit differently. But when we put this all together, we're going to see if Paul's view of the resurrection did, in fact, agree with the Pharisees. And we're going to see if the Sadducees, who he had picked on and enraged here at this trial that we studied tonight, if they are going to continue to prosecute Paul because of his view on the resurrection. Any closing shots? Thank you, Mark. Look forward to next week. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free 
our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.